0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and either turn or click to the book of Micah. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. I thought it was really cool that our pastor wanted to take us through a brief series through the book of Micah until he preached last week and then he left for two weeks to go back to Texas on vacation. And he stuck me with chapters 2 and 3, which if you've read Micah before, Chapters two and three are pretty much funeral songs. So my goal today is to depress you to the point of tears in hopes that you will come back next week. So how about we dig into Micah chapter two today? But before we do, I wanted to make you guys aware of a resource that we handed out not too long ago. It's the Right Now Media thing, and if you do not have a... Login for that yet? You can write right now media on the back of your connection card, and Tori will actually email you a link to set up your free account. This is twenty thousand discipleship videos for kids, students, and adults. Think of it like um, a Christian-based YouTube without the ads. So many resources available to you. So if you don't have that. We definitely want you to take advantage of that. That's our gift to you as a church. But we're going to watch an overview of the book of Micah because we need to understand a little bit about the background and what's going on as this 8th century prophet kind of prophesies and speaks to the people of God about what God is going to bring about. So sit tight. This is kind of a a long video. It's about six minutes, but it's really going to establish a framework for where we're going in Micah, and it's going to give us an understanding of what to expect as Micah prophesies throughout the the entire book. So go ahead and watch this video, and then we'll jump right into chapter 2. So, that's an essential overview of the book of Micah. Let's pray and be dismissed. Just kidding. (laughs) Hey, I want to recommend a resource to you. I'm the type of guy that likes to read a very small book about every 10 years, and that's about it. But I want to recommend this particular resource to you, it's by James Emery White and it's called A Mind for God. And I've pulled an excerpt from it this morning to give us a little bit of understanding of what's happening culturally in our day, but it has a lot of parallels with what is actually going on through the corrupt prophets in Micah's day. Listen to this excerpt from this uh, book by James Emery White. From 2001 to 2005, the largest research project on the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Adolescents was conducted by the National Study of Youth and Religion. This particular study cataloged the demise of the Christian worldview among Christians. Among Christians. So Christian Smith, a professor of sociology at the University of Notre Dame, was the principal investigator of this project, and he states this, It's not so much that U.S. Christianity is being secularized, Rather more subtly, Christianity is either degenerating into a pathetic version of itself or, more significantly, Christianity is actively being colonized and displaced by quite a different religious faith. Smith would go on to label this new faith moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now hang with me for just a second. Those are big words that I don't understand. So, moralistic therapeutic deism is a belief system that embraces the existence of a God who demands little more than to be nice, with the central goal of life to be happy and to feel good about oneself. So, I submit to you today that at some point or another, we've all kind of drank the moralistic therapeutic deism Kool-Aid, have we not? Why wouldn't God be about our personal achievements? I just have to be a good person, and God will reward my efforts with showers of blessing so that I will continue to increase in the eyes of others. And we're about to see how this type of thinking was especially prevalent in Micah's day. Through this 8th century prophet, we're going to see that God has a word against the people. He has a word against the prophets Yet, he has a word of promise. He has a word of promise for us. So kicking off in verse 1 of chapter 2, follow along with me. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. One commentator notes... Power can replace God in the thinking of his people. They will then be in danger of assuming that they are exercising power on his behalf when the opposite is the case. Psalm 36.4 states, Even on their beds they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Have you ever committed yourself to a sinful course before? it's okay to say yes. You have done so. You are a sinner, and your your sin has separated you from God, and the only hope that you have is in the Lord Jesus himself. Therefore, at some point in time, you have committed yourself to a sinful course. We might not necessarily plot evil on our beds, but I would venture to say that some of us, if not all of us, let's be honest, have really tried to cover some things up that we've done in our past that we're not necessarily pleased with ourselves about. We're all attached to this sinful nature that is still prevalent even in the lives of believers. There is still a struggle with sin because Christ has not come back yet and he has not made everything new. So verse 2 They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. The premeditated social evil prevalent during this time stood in direct violation of God's established laws. In Leviticus chapter 25, 23, God says that all the land belongs to him, and the Israelites were mere stewards of what he had entrusted to them because they were foreigners and strangers on his property. The people couldn't see what was happening because they were surrounded by affluence. They were surrounded by affluence. Affluence. Things were going well from their vantage point, yet God's gift to all the descendants of Abraham was now in the hands of the greedy. Now Micah, being from a small and rural community, had probably seen the poor and the destitute taken advantage of time and time again. Verse 3, Therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. What God is essentially saying here is that you want to continue planning these schemes? Okay, I've got a plan of my own. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life but notice there's a there's a quick contrast as we go into verses 4 and 5 God continues, In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to the traders. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. So this is the wailing of the powerful and the wealthy Israelites over the exile that is coming, that the video we watched referenced. What's interesting is, that they aren't actually sorry for their actions. They're sorry for the consequences that their act, about their actions that have caught up with them. The outcome of these Israelites who relentlessly oppress their fellow countrymen is that they will eventually be excommunicated from the chosen people of God. They're sorry that they got caught. That's what's happening They're sorry that they got caught. So let this be a word to us as the people of God in this time. Are we effectively mourning over our sin? Not just on a personal level, but on a national level as well. It's no secret to anybody in this room that there's some stuff going on culturally that's a bit odd. But there's some stuff going on Internally, as well, that's a bit odd. So let this be a word to us. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Likewise, most of us are familiar with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, To forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness, not just some, but all of our unrighteousness. Let this be a word to the church today. Have we adequately mourned over our sin to the point that we're not just sorry that we got caught? but we're sorry that we have any resemblance to that type of lifestyle as we pursue Christ. Okay? So now, what's interesting also is that Micah transitions to the prophet. We've heard a word against the people, but now we're going to talk about picking up in verse 6. Micah has a word against the corrupt prophets of the day. Starting in verse 6, follow along with me. I'm just going to read verses 6 through 11, and then we'll break it down. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, Does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be the just prophet for this people. So it's pretty easy to understand why the message of the corrupt prophets was readily received while the message of Micah was wildly unpopular. They spoke the words the people wanted to hear rather than what God wanted said. That's what's going on between the corrupt prophets of Micah's day and Micah himself. He is uttering the words of God. They are uttering the words that the people want to hear. This is moralistic, therapeutic deism, if you think about it. The central goal of life being happy and feeling good about oneself. There is no concern here for personal holiness. There's no concern for true justice regarding the poor and the destitute. This is how can I get mine and how can I get as much of it as I possibly can in order to feel good about myself and to carry out my agenda, my plan, my goals for personal development. And so these are harsh words and the corrupt prophets aren't hearing any of it. God doesn't really work this way. This is the central goal of our lives: personal happiness, personal enjoyment. This is why an appropriate understanding of God's word is essential to the life of a maturing disciple of Jesus. Second, uh, Second Timothy, chapter four, verses three and four says. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see this everywhere. It's so prevalent in our culture. We want to huddle together with the people that think like us. And we want this mutual affirmation, even if it's dead wrong. And so it's interesting, the parallels that we're seeing in Micah chapter 2 right here. 700 years before the birth of Christ, Micah is prophesying against the nation of Israel, who think that everything is going well, but yet they can't see. And that's something for us to think about today. Are we seeing through the eyes of Christ? Is the mind of Christ something that is continually developed within us so that we are concerned about the things that he's concerned about? Larry Osborne is the former pastor of North Coast Church, a huge church in the San Diego area, and he has this idea known as the dimmer switch principle. He says, when we respond to the light we have, we get more. When we ignore the light we have, we get less. Listen to what I mean by that through Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. It says, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Even the Apostle Paul mentions this in Romans 1. He speaks of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They knew God, but did not glorify or give him thanks. So he gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. When we're walking in the light that we have, God honors that and gives us more. When we choose darkness over light even the light that we do have begins to dim. This is why an important reading and internalizing of God's Word is essential to the life of a growing and maturing disciple of Jesus. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. As a staff, we're reading a book called The Good and Beautiful God, And there's a quote from A.W. Tozer in there that we read this last week, but I, I just love it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because that determines how your life is going to be lived out. If God is the holy and just creator and sustainer of all things, that transforms everything about how you and I live our lives. But if our essential goal in life is to be happy about ourselves, that's a pretty low view of the God that is depicted in the scriptures. So, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about God has to come from a correct understanding of what His Word says about Him, not what we feel is right about Him. Because our feelings will lie to us. That's why God has given us His Word. And it's there. And it's available to us. Micah's prophecy reveals the true God who does not make empty threats in His judgment. But, he doesn't make empty promises either. So here we we've seen a word against the people and a word against the prophets but now we see a word of promise. And it's a quick transition. Micah goes from judgment To promise very quickly at the beginning of verse 12. It says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. It's here where Micah quickly transitions to the future hope that is coming to the nation of Israel. One of my favorite professors in college said this about this verse. It refers to a small group of faithful, believing, obedient, covenant Israelites from which God will build his kingdom. The majority of these covenant people are not believers, not obedient, and not right with God. Therefore, they deserve the, ju- the judgment that's coming. But there will be a faithful remnant that is preserved. God draws together this faithful remnant in a safe enclosure like sheep in a pen. But what's interesting is a figure called the breaker emerges from within the enclosure completely unannounced. Look at verse 13. The one who breaks open, literally, the breaker. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. The breaker bursts through the gate because he has gone before the faithful remnant in order to lead his people into glory. I just said that the breaker's work is not done from the outside of the enclosure, but from within it. The breaker is one of them. And it isn't, isn't it interesting that in Micah 5, 2, the prophet records, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites." He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. I love the subtitle of Sally Lloyd-Jones' book, The Jesus Storybook Bible. It says, Every story whispers his name. Every story that we find in the scriptures, is a story that reveals the name of Jesus and who he is and how he will come and what he will do. And as I mentioned before, 700 years before Jesus even arrives on the scene, he's being spoken of as the breaker, the one that will lead the remnant of Israel from the enclosure. And he will be at their head, and he will be their king. The remnant will only receive its final glory through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, born of a virgin yet eternal, without sin, yet crucified as a sinner in order to satisfy God the Father's wrath against humanity's rebellion. Upon taking his last breath, he was removed from the cross, placed in a fresh cut tomb guarded by soldiers, and three days later came back to life in resurrection power, conquering both sin and death. This is who Jesus is. This is what he does. This is what he's about. This is what we can make a decision for. Some might even ask, okay, why does that have any bearing on my life whatsoever? Because as we've just seen, God's judgment is real. And he requires a standard that you do not meet in order to stand before him completely blameless, and that standard is perfection. It takes a recognition that we are separated from the one who created us because we turn to our own way and think it's up to us to become better versions of ourselves. Micah's contemporary, the prophet Isaiah, says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In First Timothy chapter five, chapter two, verses five and six, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Do we have an understanding, an appropriate understanding as a growing and maturing disciple of Jesus? Of what he does for us. As I mentioned, he defeated both sin and death in resurrection power. Not only that, he satisfied the total wrath of God that sinful humanity caused to happen. And one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus does. Not not only does he save us initially, (laughs) I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of the story and the good news of the gospel on a daily basis. In other words, I need to be saved from myself each and every day. So there's that initial salvation, there's that progressive salvation, but there's also coming a day when everything will be made right. And as the song says, "The, the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So my question to us today is, where are you at with Jesus himself. Have you reached the point in your life where you've connected the dots? If you haven't and you're beginning to connect the dots, I believe that that is the Holy Spirit of God working in you to soften your heart in such a way to where you're receptive of the truth of the gospel that has been preached through the prophet Micah today. Scripture is too beautiful of a tapestry in how it is woven together in order in a way that it's not coincidental at all. And so I'm banking everything about my life and my existence and my eternity on the truth of the gospel. And so as we continue through this series in the book of Micah we're going to continue to see how the beautiful tapestry of the gospel just continues to be unveiled through this. Yes, there's judgment. Yes, there are harsh words. But we need to hear those, especially in a culture that we currently inhabit. When we see so much confusion, so much injustice happening all around us each and every day. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because that is going to determine the way that you live your life. I want to give you an opportunity to respond today like if you've been on the fence about what the gospel actually is and the implications and what it means, the very first box on the back of your connection card says, I would like to commit my life to Christ for the first time. That option is available to you. You can just check that box, and a member of our pastoral staff will be in touch with you. And for the believer, my challenge to us today is, are we an ever-maturing and growing disciple of Jesus? Are we being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit? Are we determined to demonstrate the love of Christ to people that are different? Socioeconomically, a differing sexual preference. Are we going to convey to them the love of Christ that is the only thing that can transform them from the inside out, just as it is doing for us? Let me pray for us.